You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. The era of growth in oil demand is coming to an end. Burning of fuel to produce electricity is incredibly inefficient. I mean, forget it. There's over 200 million electric bikes in China right now. For September 1st, 2021, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Of all the energy transition stories in the world, Japan's has to be one of the most opaque. Since its nuclear power fleet was shut down in the wake of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant meltdown in 2011, foreign observers like me have heard a long series of ever-changing and often contradictory narratives about the future of its energy system. Sometimes the story was that they were working on restarting the nuclear plants. Then we heard that former Japanese Prime Minister Junichiro Koizumi urged current Prime Minister Shinzo Abe to abandon nuclear power. We heard wild speculations about how much Japan's emissions would go up as fossil fuel generators replaced the shuttered nuclear fleet. Then we heard that through a combination of behavioral and efficiency changes, Japan had managed to sharply reduce its power demands and emissions rose, but not as much as feared. Then some reactors were restarted, and then some of them were shut down again. Hopeful pronouncements about impending restarts suddenly fizzled as local officials refused to approve the restarts. While numerous alternatives, from offshore methane hydrates to domestic renewables, failed to live up to their hype. And so on for years. Back around 2013 or so, when I was a freelance energy journalist researching an article I wrote for The Atlantic about Japan's methane hydrates, which you can find linked into the show notes, I expended significant effort to get anyone from the government or TEPCO, the utility that owned the Fukushima plant, to speak to me about how Japan was dealing with the loss of its nuclear generation, but no one would. The whole topic of Japan's energy seemed to be a black box, opaque, silent, incoherent, and impenetrable. Even so, I've continued to be interested in the topic. Ever since we started this podcast six years ago, I've continued to maintain a research file on Japan and keep an eye out for an expert on the topic who would be right for this show. And I finally found one in the form of Stephen Stepchinsky, an energy journalist with Bloomberg. A native speaker of English, he lived in Japan and has reported on its energy sector for several years, closely following the twists and turns of its nuclear sector and its energy ministry. So I was very pleased that he agreed to join us on the show and share with our listeners a coherent narrative about the country's entire nuclear and energy system history, starting with the aftermath of World War II, recounting the Fukushima plant disaster, and continuing on up to the present, including the sector's surprising connection to Japanese baseball. And although the land of the rising sun looks stuck between a rock and a hard place in terms of its energy options, ultimately I see an immense opportunity for energy transition, if the incumbents in the nuclear industry and their advocates in government will stop trying to resurrect the nuclear fleet, get out of the way, and allow renewables, DERs, and other technologies of the energy transition to receive serious policy support. And the good news is, with the recent pronouncements of Japan's Ministry of Economy, Trade, and Industry, I think they're just about there. So I invite you to take this journey with Stephen and me as we explore the fascinating energy history and the current challenges and opportunities of Japan's energy sector. 
Then in the new segment of this episode, we'll note fresh concerns around the Chernobyl nuclear plant. We'll consider the implications of Japan's new policy on LNG for the global LNG sector. We'll take a look at a plan to build the world's largest solar photovoltaic system. We'll applaud a new regulatory proceeding focused on DERs in California. And we'll review some recent positive data on the energy transition from the analysts at BNEF. And now, our conversation with Stephen Stepchinsky, recorded July 26th, 2021. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Stephen, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you for having me. This is great. Well, today we're going to discuss the history of nuclear power in Japan and its role in not just providing power, but also its importance as a tool in reaching the country's carbon reduction goals. And I think I'd like to start with a bit of history. So when, how, and why did Japan start relying on nuclear power? Well, I'll start with the when. So Japan really started to explore nuclear energy in the early 1950s, which is more than half a century ago. It's fascinating that that history dates all the way back to then. One of the important figureheads that you have to look at in the history of Japan's nuclear sector is this magnate, this man named Matsutaro Shodiki. And he ran the Yomiuri Shimbun in Japan. It's one of Japan's largest newspapers. He ran it from the early 20th century and he owned it. And their entire newspaper industry was built on the back of Shuriki-san. And he's also, at the same time, considered the father of Japanese professional baseball, which is also (laughs) interesting. You know, if you're a baseball fan, you'll know about the Yomiuri Giants. So that's Tokyo's team. So the Yomiuri Shimbun was a sponsor for the Giants. What Shuriki did was, even before World War II, he would try to get baseball games between the United States and Japanese teams in the 1930s going. And he had some success. So this figure had this maverick. He was very connected with the government during the war. And then after the war, he still kind of held a lot of responsibilities. And one of them was operating and running the Yomiuri Shimbun, which was read by most of the people in the country. And so after World War II, the CIA came out and they said, hey, we want to develop our nuclear energy program around the world. The U.S. really looked at nuclear energy as a way to kind of build peace with other nations. That's when U.S. President Eisenhower gave the famous Atoms for Peace speech at the U.N. in 1953. He was seeking to deliver this nuclear technology to overseas allies while also kind of insulating the United States from continuing to use nuclear weapons. It's kind of a two-pronged approach. Hmm. You can use nuclear energy for peace. We're going to keep our arsenal as we build up this very young Cold War with the USSR. Right. So after the war, the CIA went to Shuriki and they said, hey, listen, you know, we want to build this campaign for nuclear energy in Japan. And Shuriki was actually already interested in nuclear energy before the CIA, before people came to him to discuss how they can promote nuclear energy in Japan. And when the U.S. government looked at who they could go to, Shuriki made the most sense because he had the most connections, not just with the newspaper, but also politically. He was he was a member of parliament. He had a lot of weight. And he had the power to mobilize newspaper and radio to get nuclear on the side. So when you look at Japanese history, of course, the U.S. dropped two atomic bombs on Japan in 1945. And the memory of Hiroshima and Nagasaki remained very vivid in the country. And so getting people on board with nuclear energy was already going to be a tall task. But what Shuriki did was between 1954 and 1957... 
His newspaper, the Yomiuri Shimbun, ran 52 editorials which proclaimed the benefit of nuclear power. Just to put that into comparison, the paper only ran four pieces about atomic anything between 1945 and 1953. (laughs) So this is a very big push. And when you look at it in hindsight, yes, like in a way you could call this propaganda. But at the same time, Shuriki looked at this as a security thing for the country. You know, he explained that nuclear was safe and a nearly limitless energy source. He was very nationalistic, Mm. probably to a fault. And he saw this as a way helping Japan regain a level of independence, even though they were going to be depending on the United States for the technology. That is fascinating and really a striking bit of history. I mean, to think that just eight years after the U.S. dropped the first nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, a U.S. president was pushing nuclear as a peace solution there. So how did Japan proceed with building its nuclear fleet? So after, well, even before, to be honest, uh, Shuriki began his campaign, the Japanese government was already setting aside money for nuclear research. They knew they had to at least look at this technology, especially as the U.S. government was pushing it. So in late 1953, the government put aside about over 200 million yen for researching atomic energy, and they established basic laws in 1955 after the Yomiuri Shimbun began to really write all these editorials. Hmm. What's interesting is Japan tapped Shuriki to become the first head of the newly created Japan Atomic Energy Commission. They were basically the regulator and they chartered the nation's five-year nuclear research ambitions. Now, I'm not sure how closely you follow nuclear right now, but when you think about people who are leading energy commissions or nuclear commissions or nuclear regulators, you think of engineers, right? You think of the scientists. They're usually physicists, not newspaper publishers. Newspaper publishers or baseball aficionados. (laughs) So it really showed how much power... Shuriki had in the early days of Japan's nuclear industry, and quite frankly, because they set the first five-year nuclear research plan, without Shuriki and without his view and without his big personality, you could argue that Japan maybe never really developed that industry as quickly and as big as they did Uh in the years, the decades after. So the nation, now let's get to the nitty-gritty. Let's look at the research reactors that Japan started to build. The first one was called the JRR-1, and it was technology that was imported from the U.S. American technicians were teaching the Japanese everything they knew, Hmm. how to operate this. In fact, most of the nuclear engineers that were being trained at Tokyo Electric, TEPCO, were trained in schools in Illinois. It was the International School for Nuclear Engineering, Hmm. which was operated by the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission. So... Early in Japan's nuclear history, not only were they pushing the atoms for peace, but they were also pushing their technology on Japan. And that's when the JRR-1 was built. It first hit criticality in 1957. So just put that into perspective. 1953 is when the government first set aside the money. Then Shuriki started his campaign in newspapers. And then just four years later, Japan was operating an experimental nuclear reactor. That's a very quick turnaround. I mean, especially when you look at the industry today where it can take a decade to build a nuclear reactor. Back then, it was much quicker. And of course, the scale was much smaller and the technology was much simpler. So by the mid-1950s, the Japanese government realized that their economy was poised to grow rapidly. And that would increase fuel imports 4.5-fold, almost 5-fold 
through 1975. And so because of that, they knew we're going to need a lot of oil. Back then, they used a lot of oil for power generation. That's true. And they saw nuclear as a way to reduce imports. When they had their energy targets drawn up, they really saw, hey, let's look at how much we can make nuclear part of our energy mix. And they had an ambitious goal of having nuclear make up 17% of the power mix by 1975. Okay. And that's quite ambitious. They were really going from zero to 100 miles per hour. And then around that time, Japan imported its second research reactor, again from the United States. But this time, they fabricated the parts locally. And that's a really important distinction that I will get to in a moment. But let me just talk a little bit more about the U.S.-Japan partnership. Now, when I was doing my research for the 10-year anniversary of Fukushima, I was reading a lot of old industry press about the nuclear industry. And there were already weekly nuclear industry newspapers being published in the 1950s. And one thing that I found really interesting was they set up this U.S.-Japan Joint Atomic Industrial Forums Conference. It's basically a conference to help build the relationship between the United States and Japan for nuclear technology. And there was a lot of press and photos and fanfare around this event. You could see pictures. There are dozens of people attending. It was in this energy space in Japan. It was a big deal. And so when they were building their third reactor, that's when they used only domestic technology. This third research reactor called the JRR-3, constructed by engineers at companies called Hitachi, Toshiba, Mitsubishi Heavy, Fuji Electric. Hmm. Now, those names, if you look at the energy industry today, those names are big names. You bet. They're titans of Japan's nuclear industry. And already in the nineteen late 1950s, early 1960s, these folks were already very active in the industry. So this, this all dates back. It's the same story over and over again. It's really fascinating. And so... The Japan Atomic Energy Research Institute used a GE design to make the nation's first demonstration reactor, which is different than a prototype reactor. And it has a much larger capacity. And that began operations in 1963. Hitachi participated in the construction. Hitachi and GE have strong partnerships since then. So since that facility was built in the early 1960s, GE and Hitachi have been working together on nuclear technology. Not only is there the political things, there's the industry, there's all these relationships between the U.S. and Japan. But despite that, despite that, the U.S.-Japan relationship was strong. But despite that, the nation's, Japan's first commercial nuclear reactor was imported from the United Kingdom. Huh. I know, it's weird. The Tokai number one was a 160 megawatt gas-cooled reactor, which began operations in 1966. It ran for more than 30 years and it was technology from the uk and it was also because of early limits on exports of u.s atomic energy technology japan had initially turned to great britain for help with civil nuclear power for this they used the british design magnox reactor it was a co2 cooled and graphite moderated facility and that i was trying very hard to research how the u.s felt about japan using this reactor. It doesn't seem like there was a lot of animosity, but it seems like the relationship still held because when you look at Japan's nuclear history after that, every reactor built in Japan after that was essentially a so-called light water reactor. Hmm. You know, the Japanese shifted their attention quickly to U.S. designed light water reactors, both the boiling design and the pressurized water reactors. And so, for example, for Fukushima Daiichi, 
the first reactor of Fukushima Daiichi was a General Electric boiling water reactor. That construction started in 1967 and went into commercial operations in 1970. And so while there is this hiccup with them using the UK design, after that, they're very much on board with US technology and cooperating with the US. And eventually, they were kind of just continuing to just borrow a lot of the US designs. Because when you get a permit to build a reactor, you can get the design from the US. And even though you get the design, it doesn't have to be built by the US engineers. You can Mitsubishi Heavy, Toshiba Hitachi can build it. And quickly, they were gaining a lot of know-how and quickly understanding how to use and how to build nuclear reactors and all of the facilities around nuclear energy. So that's when in the 1970s, Japan really doubled down on nuclear and they decided to pursue something called a closed nuclear fuel cycle, which very simply put means that they use uranium in the reactor. When it's done, they can essentially recycle it and use it again. Right. And this closed cycle is the dream of Japan because Japan is resource poor. Right. This was right around the oil shock in the 1970s. And they said, listen, we're going to need a way to keep ourselves safe. Our economy is growing very quickly. We don't want to depend on foreign countries for fuel. And we want to be energy independent. And the closed nuclear fuel cycle was one way for them to try to do that. And that was the dream. So they enacted a law that made nuclear energy a strategic priority in the nation in 1973. And for all intent and purposes, the future for nuclear power was really bright. It looked great for the domestic engineering firms. If you were a college student and you studied nuclear engineering, you were going to get a job. And the local governments, the towns that housed the facilities, saw a huge economic windfall from the business, not only having the plant there and employing all the people in their town, but also one thing that I learned when I visited nuclear power plants during my time in Japan was the taxi drivers would tell me, we got a lot of business too. Business people are coming to visit. There are a lot of people visiting all the time. The hotels were busy. It really helps the whole industry. So nuclear not only helped with Japan's energy independence, but it also created in a lot of ways a mini economic boom in the country and in the local municipalities that was home for these plants. Right. Okay. So that's a really helpful bit of history, I think, there to kind of set that context, because I think we can still see the echoes of the political and economic context that was giving rise to this nuclear industry in Japan right up to the modern era. So let's talk about the role of nuclear in the modern era. Where has Japan gotten to prior to Fukushima with its nuclear industry? Yeah, let me focus from 1979 to 2010, basically, or just right before Fukushima in 2010. Japan had 54 nuclear reactors online in 2010. That made them the third biggest operator of atomic facilities in the world. That's quite big, the biggest in Asia. Half the reactors were that boiling water type reactors, while the other half were the pressured water reactors. So they were still essentially using iterations on technology that they adopted in the late 60s and early 70s. And the Japanese engineering firms were world-renowned for building some of the most advanced nuclear reactors. So there's a nuclear plant in Japan called Kashiwazaki Kariwa. It's operated by TEPCO. They have some so-called Generation 3 nuclear reactors built at that plant. They were some of the world's first Generation 3. The government was looking to export Japanese nuclear technology. One country that was very interested in buying nuclear reactors from Japan was Turkey. 
and that never materialized. But huh. a lot of Japanese companies were looking to sell it there. And then in 2007, Hitachi and GE set up a dual JV in the US and in Japan to win contracts. And they were looking to build some reactors in the United Kingdom. So by 2010, all this nuclear was making up about 30% of Japan's power needs, mm. their power demand. And actually, what's even more fascinating, I think people forget about this because Fukushima was such a large event. In June 2010, the Japanese cabinet adopted a new basic energy plan, which targeted nuclear to make up more than 50% of the power mix by 2030. Hmm. So essentially, nuclear power to Japan was the perfect solution for them. It required minimal overseas fuels, takes up little land. It was unlike solar and onshore wind where it's not producing power all the time. It produces carbon-free power around the clock. And the government essentially put all their chips on nuclear power. But even before Fukushima, you could kind of see some cracks in this facade. One of them is the nuclear fuel cycle, the thing that I talked about, the limitless recycling of nuclear energy. They were supposed to have this facility called Rokusho, which recycles the fuel. That would be in the reprocessing facility. Precisely, the reprocessing mm-hmm. facility. That was supposed to be online in the late 1990s. This is 2010. It's not even online yet. It's been delayed many times. There were a lot of technical challenges. It's far over budget. The future of a closed fuel cycle that they had dreamed up in the 1970s still isn't there 40 years later. At the same time, there were a few nuclear safety mishaps that kind of made folks a bit nervous. And there were issues around the safety of the plants in terms of natural disasters. There was a strong earthquake offshore Japan near Niigata Prefecture, near TEPCO's Kashiwazaki Kadoa nuclear power plant. And that earthquake resulted in the complete shutdown of the facility for 21 months because the shock was beyond the plant's design. The plant was designed to take a certain level of shock, but this large magnitude 6.6 earthquake effectively damaged the plant, and they needed seismic upgrades to the units. And some of them were still offline by March 2011, when there was the Fukushima disaster. But what I'm trying to get at is, Japan had doubled down on nuclear, but you could already see that there were some potential safety problems that the industry either was ignorant to or they sometimes ignored. Okay, so prior to Fukushima, then clearly this closed cycle vision had yet to materialize. The reprocessing facility had not yet been built. I assume, therefore, that there was some nuclear waste that was starting to stack up somewhere since they weren't reprocessing it. Yes, nuclear waste, especially the plutonium made during the nuclear reaction in a reactor, was a bit of an issue. And one of the problems, especially for the neighbors, for China, for Korea, was what to do about disposing and processing it. And what Japan did was they looked to France and the UK, actually, and they said, hey, take our nuclear waste, reprocess it, store it, and then we'll take it back later. And the grand plan, this reprocessing plan of Rokusho in Japan, that was supposed to be where they were going to be reprocessing and storing a lot of this nuclear waste. But that plant still to this day isn't 100% complete and they still can't store the nuclear waste. But that all being said, the amount of nuclear waste in Japan is not super detrimental and they can find places within either the existing nuclear reactors to store it temporarily or they have some midterm storage facilities. But the long-term storage of nuclear waste to this day still hasn't really been 
solved. And that is an issue that sort of hangs over the industry. Right. Just like here in the U.S. and a lot of other places, too. Okay. So there was not only some of the patina of respectability of the nuclear industry was starting to wear off a little bit there with these various engineering and project challenges. But at the same time, the political momentum was around increasing Japan's nuclear capacity. So they still had this target to get from sort of 30% up to 50% of the power mix. So there was already a bit of tension happening there before the Fukushima disaster. So then we come to the Fukushima disaster. So why don't you quickly refresh our listeners on what happened there? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, interactive transcripts of our interviews, our extensive show notes with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast, featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. According to a May article in Science, the remains of the uranium fuel buried deep inside the mangled reactor at Chernobyl have started smoldering again. Ukrainian scientists are now scrambling to determine whether the reactions will cease on their own or if further interventions will be needed to avert another accident. According to an expert with the Institute for Safety Problems of Nuclear Power Plants in Kiev, Ukraine, the neutron counts are rising slowly, suggesting that managers may have a few years to figure out how to stifle the reactions. Naturally, any remedy they come up with will be of keen interest to Japan, which is still struggling to manage the risk at the remains of the Fukushima plant. Chernobyl officials thought any risk of criticality would be permanently extinguished after the installation of the massive 1.5 billion euro new safe confinement dome over the site in 2016. But neutron counts began to edge up in a few spots, and the local agency's modeling suggests that the drying of the fuel is actually making neutrons ricochet through it more rather than less, and splitting more uranium nuclei. As water continues to recede, the fear is that the fission reaction will accelerate exponentially, leading to an uncontrolled release of nuclear energy. Although any explosive reaction would be contained, it could threaten to bring down unstable parts of the rickety shelter inside, filling the containment dome with radioactive dust. 
Worse, the remaining fuel residue, known as fuel-containing materials, are disintegrating and generating even more radioactive dust, complicating plans to dismantle the shelter. All in all, the new situation at Chernobyl is complicating Ukraine's plans to remove the fuels and store them in a geological repository. Log into our website and see the links in the show notes for much more technical information on this story. Item 2. Although we didn't discuss the subject in this conversation, Stephen's current beat is the liquefied natural gas, or LNG, market, and there was a relevant story about that sector that Stephen published the same day. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.